This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. A week ago, Bloomberg reported that South Africa was only likely to get COVID-19 vaccines rolled out in earnest by mid-2021, and even then only for a select few. That created an outcry from the medical fraternity. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we speak to Professor Francois Fenter, a professor of medicine at the University of the Witwatersrand. He has been pushing the government to share detailed plans for who will get the vaccines and when. A former advisor on the government advisory panel, Professor Fenter warns that the vaccine may not be administered en masse next year at all. We also hear from one of the founders of the Great Barrington Declaration about how we should manage COVID-19 until those vaccines arrive. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is opposed to strict lockdown, but is in favour of what he calls focus protection. He says lockdown is the single biggest mistake in health policy in his lifetime, but we should take protective measures and this can include wearing masks, particularly if we are in vulnerable groups. In this episode, we also hear from Discovery Health Executive Associate Maria Makabani Leke about an innovation in the provision of private medical care. You will now be able to pay as you go for GPs, with the offering set to be rolled out to dentists and specialists soon. First, the Inside COVID-19 headlines. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. The fight against COVID-19 took a historic leap forward this week after the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was given to someone outside a clinical trial for the first time. This was reported by the British media. Grandmother of four, Margaret Keenan, 90, became the first person in the world to receive the jab as part of a vaccination program. Mrs. Keenan, who worked as a jewellery shop assistant until only four years ago, will receive a booster jab in about 20 days' time, to ensure she has the best chance of being protected against the virus. The UK became the first country in the world to approve the Pfizer vaccine. At the weekend, it began arriving in batches at a hospital in South London, ahead of the UK-wide rollout. Tuesday was called V-Day by Health Secretary Matt Hancock, with people aged 80 and over and care home workers among the first to receive the jab. The New York Times reports that the coronavirus vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech provides strong protection against COVID-19, within about 10 days of the first dose. This is according to documents published on Tuesday by the Food and Drug Administration before a meeting of its vaccine advisory group. The finding is one of several significant new results featured in the briefing materials, which includes more than 100 pages of data analyses from the agency and from Pfizer. Last month, Pfizer and BioNTech announced that their two-dose vaccine had an efficacy rate of 95%, after two doses administered three weeks apart. The new analyses show that the protection starts kicking in far earlier. What's more, the vaccine worked well regardless of a volunteer's race, weight or age. While the trial did not find any serious adverse events caused by the vaccine, many participants did experience aches, fevers and other side effects. William and Kate have been in the headlines for breaking cross-border travel restrictions. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, 
has suggested that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge travelled to Edinburgh despite their office being made aware of restrictions on cross-border movement. Ms Sturgeon appeared to give a frosty reception to the royal couple, who brought Christmas cheer north of the border as they thanked frontline workers for persevering during the pandemic. During her daily coronavirus briefing, Ms Sturgeon was asked about claims that the Duke and Duchess's visit to Edinburgh was in breach of cross-border travel restrictions. She was quoted as saying, The royal visit is a matter for the royal household and the arrangements around it, and any questions about those arrangements should be directed to the royal household. The Scottish government was advised about the intention to visit, and we made sure that the royal household were aware, as you would expect, of all of the restrictions in place in Scotland, so that that could inform both the decision and the planning of the visit. But, said Sturgeon, I think any questions about that should be directed to the royal household. The Wall Street Journal reports that hospitals in the United States are rushing to firm up plans for deciding which healthcare workers can receive the COVID-19 vaccine first, with initial supplies widely expected to fall short of the amount needed to vaccinate all high-priority workers. December vaccine deliveries are expected to be enough for about 20 million people, according to federal officials. That's slightly less than what is needed to vaccinate all frontline medical professionals and long-term care residents. That leaves hospitals with the task of deciding who among their high-priority employees should go first. London is on course to be placed in the toughest tier of coronavirus restrictions next week after new data revealed that the UK capital has the highest rate of cases in England. This is according to Bloomberg. The news agency says that lawmakers were told in a government briefing that COVID-19 rates in the city are rising and compare badly with other regions currently in Tier 3, which is the top level of curbs. Stockholm has almost run out of ICU beds. Bloomberg reports that Sweden is trying to figure out how to expand capacity in its healthcare system after almost running out of intensive care beds in Stockholm. Stockholm's ICU capacity reached 99% this week, as infection rates in the largest Nordic capital soar. The largest union of US airline pilots is asking the government to give cockpit crews preference for receiving the coronavirus vaccine to ensure its shipment by air cargo isn't interrupted. Cargo airline pilots have experienced an alarming increase in COVID-19 exposure and infections, says the president of the Airline Pilots Association. Authorities in Germany are discussing tighter nationwide restrictions before Christmas, and some regions are already acting. Berlin is set to join Bavaria and Saxony with stricter measures. The capital plans to close all non-essential shops and extend school breaks until January the 10th. The South African government has declared a second wave of coronavirus infections as the number of cases has surged. The wave is being driven by the provinces of the Western Cape, Eastern Cape, KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. That's according to Health Minister William Kize. A seven-day moving average graph shows that the increases in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng are exponential, he says. South Africa registered a record 6,709 infections on Wednesday, bringing the total number to just under 830,000, with nearly 23,000 deaths. Coming up, Discovery Health Executive Associate Maria Makabani-Leke speaks to us about an innovation in the provision of private medical care. Uh, Maria, perhaps you could take us through this very exciting development. 
Yeah. Hi, Jackie. Pleasure to be here. Very excited to be launching uh, Discovery's prepaid health product. It's a digital platform that enables access for everyone in South Africa to high quality, affordable primary health care in the private sector on a pay-as-you-go basis. So this is not a medical insurance product. Uh, you can purchase it as and when you need for private healthcare services. And we're starting off by offering our flagship, which is a GP consultation with medication for just 300 Rand. So all inclusive of the consultation, as well as your meds, typically that might even include antibiotics for five to seven day period and all for just a 300 Rand with any of the high quality doctors within our network. And is this cheaper than paying by cash or card? Yeah, certainly. So we've gone through an extensive amount of research in our development process and our innovation process as we came up with this product. And what we found is that a significant um, a proportion of the population, I think only 16% of the population has medical cover. The remainder are purchasing healthcare on a cash basis. And those purchasing healthcare on a cash basis are encountering several issues, pricing and price transparency is specifically one, where you have a, ver a large variance in the amount that you would be charged for the doctor's consults as well as the medications. In most instances, even far, far beyond medical aid rates. And so by creating a voucher that specifically caters to a combination of both the consultation as well as the medication for a 300 rand price point, we're able to secure and give users the confidence that they will get consultation at that 300 rand price point, which is well below a lot of the going rates for consult, GP consults, let alone GP consults plus medication. How have you got buy-in from the medical professionals? What's in it for them? So, I mean, as you know, Discovery Health has has a very long-standing history in the health system in South Africa. I have a lot of data, AP, and significant relationships with various healthcare providers. But through that data stores and years of experience of working with them, we've been able to identify the optimal intersection between high quality and affordability. So we've handpicked our initial uh, network of Discovery prepaid health GPs and and they're able to offer us an, this competitive price and we know that they're of a high quality so they'll be able to provide that quality service that Discovery you know, holds in, in high regard. We've used an interesting contracting mechanism with them with various prepayments in order to secure blocks of time for these GPs and a combination with, of that and their belief in the, in the product that we're growing, the belief that over time this will become a ubiquitous way to consume a healthcare, private healthcare in South Africa. They've bought into this vision and are as eager as us to create the volumes within this, this structure over time. Dasi, you've also got WhatsApp as a way to distribute this. Can you tell us a bit about how that works? Yeah, definitely. It's opened in the vision of trying to make this as accessible as possible to as many South Africans as possible. We know that WhatsApp is a pervasive platform in SA and highly accessible. And so as we were envisioning um, taking this product to market, in addition to the standard, more standard app-based, which we also have an app entry point for 
this platform, we've introduced a WhatsApp-based platform. So you have very, very similar, if not all, functionality across the two price point, across the two platforms. could use them almost interchangeably, but it just gives us that much more reach and much more access to a broader cross-section of the population by enabling it through WhatsApp as well. So it's incredibly easy to use. You know, you just uh, send a hello to our WhatsApp number or you access our website via discovery.co.za and then you're able to get onto the, the prepaid platform in those ways. So you said it's not medical insurance. So who's going to use these vouchers? People outside your medical scheme or can they use it as an add-on? Yeah, it's both. You've hit it right on the head, Jackie. So on the one hand, there's a huge use case for the part of the population that doesn't necessarily have uh, medical insurance at this stage or are on hospital plans. And so they, the use case there would be for them to use it for their own, uh, for their own consumption. But we know from our research that there's a significant need or desire for, or from South Africans to be able to share high quality care with those that they love and um, that maybe in a different location, you know, further further away, your grandma, your aunts, you know, children that are studying far from home, or employers that want to be able to provide healthcare to to their employees at these through these vouchers. And so we've a- enabled a share functionality where even individuals who have medical insurance can buy these vouchers on behalf of their loved ones, their employees, etc., and then share it with them and have the guarantee that it's high quality uh, healthcare that they're offering to their loved ones. Is this only for GP visits or specialists as well? just launching with our flagship product, which is the GPs, but we've been receiving quite a lot of interest in expanding the voucher set, and that's exactly what we plan to do. So very, very early in the next year, we'll be rolling out several other vouchers. So vouchers that include pharmacy, nurse consultations, virtual GP consultations, and later in the year, also more specialist type of vouchers, uh, specifically looking at optometry and dentistry as the first places to you know, to roll out. But, you know, the vision really is for this to be as ubiquitous as purchasing airtime, that you purchase uh, the new way of purchasing healthcare. And as a result, we want to make it as pervasive, accessible, you know, as user-friendly as possible. And so including all of these types of uh, services beyond just the GP voucher is very much in our plans. Maria, is this a world first? We've seen a lot of innovation in this space, uh, Jackie. And in fact, we've borrowed quite a lot from uh, from all over the globe in in terms of uh, designing this product with South African uh, with the South African consumer in mind. Some of our biggest inspirations came from cases such as Tonic, uh, which is a huge telemedicine use case in Bangladesh, and how they were able to very quickly scale up to servicing up to five million Bangladeshis via their telemedicine platform and doing so while maintaining the highest quality and offering star doctors to, you know, to the base of the pyramid in their, in their country. Equally through our partnership with Pingan, we've learned a lot about how to make digital uh, services and digital payments for healthcare accessible in China. And so we've embedded a lot of that, including this WhatsApp functionality that we just spoke about into the design of our product. So we've borrowed quite a lot and we've really tailor-made for for South Africans, you know, that's uh, that's really the basis for our innovation. I see that Vitality members can share their rewards by giving somebody a voucher like this. 
Yes, certainly. Uh, So through our uh, Vitality Active Rewards Mall, there is a possibility to actually purchase these vouchers using your discovery miles. And those can then definitely be shared, you know, with anybody in your network who might be in need of a GP consult voucher. Sounds excellent. Before we close off, are there any restrictions on the voucher? Not really. I mean, you can buy as many vouchers as you as you like. The vouchers, once you have uploaded funds onto the digital our digital platforms, either through WhatsApp or the the web based app, you really that that money stays there, does not expire, which is um, which is good to know. And then you can use it to redeem for anything on our platform. You won't be able to withdraw uh, funds from the platform once it's in. But I think that's about the only restriction that we're applying. Presumably, you can only use this at this stage for doctor consultations in South Africa. So you wouldn't be able to use it if you go on holiday and you get sick. Yeah, correct. So this is um, this is a really good point, Jackie. It's it's focused on GPs within our Discovery prepaid health network. So it's a specific network that we've set up specifically for the, these vouchers and this product. Um, and so that is exactly where you'd be able to redeem these vouchers. You can access the list of providers that are within this prepaid health network on our website or through the WhatsApp application. Did COVID-19 have anything to do with this innovation? I think we've been dreaming of this innovation for quite some time, but I think that COVID has certainly made it as relevant as ever. I think health is quite top of mind for many South Africans at this stage. Access to quality health in particular is becoming more and more important to a large cross-section of the population. So that's, you know, that's uh, one aspect of its relevance at this stage. And then over time, and while we're looking at the virtual consultations as one of the next vouchers that we'll be rolling in, to this platform is precisely for the point of making it safe to consume even during COVID times. We've had incredible success and growth on our virtual consults platform for the medical schemes population. And we believe that we can it can actually be quite a game changer on this prepaid health platform as well. We have a fen- phenomenal panel of virtual consultation doctors already lined up in place for when we, when we launch this voucher. And so we believe that we could access even more of the population, you know, through that voucher, uh, given the the lack of geographic restrictions in terms of doctors' consults at that point. This is a really exciting innovation, and you're going to bring maybe 50% of South Africans into the private healthcare market. Yeah, so, so definitely. I mean, what we know from our research is that only 16% of the population has access to medical scheme cover. And the remainder of the population, at least 50% of them are already consuming private health care, but uh, are experiencing the extreme pain points, both in terms of being able to secure the right quality of care, as there's quite a lot of variance, and the second aspect being this, uh, uh, the variability in price point. And so we're hoping that through this innovation, create, adding that transparency and certainty in terms of pricing, as well as being able to assure customers of the quality of our, our network and the care you'd receive through our network, we are able to actually cater to that 50% of that, that cash-paying uh, private healthcare consuming population in SA. You've been listening to Maria Makabani-Leke, Executive Associate at Discovery Health And she's been chatting to us about a very exciting digital health innovation, the Discovery Prepaid Health Platform, which is open to everybody.
We speak to Professor François Fenter, a professor of medicine at the University of the Witwatersrand. He has been pushing the government to share detailed plans for who will get vaccines. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. With me is Professor François Fenter. You're a professor of medicine at the University of Witwatersrand and a former member of the Ministerial Advisory Council on the virus. And you are also the divisional director of an organization called Isintia. Perhaps you could just explain briefly what that does. Sure, we're a, we're an academic organisation linked to the University of Witwatersrand to the medical school. We do innovative work in HIV predominantly, although recently we've started to pivot to a whole range of diseases, including COVID. But we also do systems research, like trying to get treatment simpler and faster and cheaper and more convenient for people to access. We also do some policy. We do a lot of policy and drug advocacy, trying to get the cost of treatments down. So I work with about a group of 100 amazing people who, yeah, we're just very committed to trying to find, trying to make the health of South Africans better. I see that you're also a volunteer on one of the COVID-19 vaccine trials. Yes, South Africa has a remarkable group of researchers, and this does not include me, by the way, I'm just saying uh, we don't do vaccine research. But a large number of people in South Africa have a lot of research experience in terms of bringing out new vaccines and have been at the forefront of driving some of these new vaccines into the markets and probably have been responsible for saving millions of South African lives. When this vaccine first came out, there was this big weird push from a variety of these, the usual anti-vaccine, anti-science people, but also a whole lot of people saying, oh, you're coming to test this in Africa on guinea pigs. And it was a very unpleasant conversation because South Africans are actually grossly under-researched. You know, the vast majority of research happens in North America and Europe when, you know, these things will often be tested um, in those countries and then happily trolled out and just uh, trotted out into into Africa with no data on, on, on safety with or efficacy in local communities. So this, so to combat that, I participated in that vaccine study along with a whole lot of my other colleagues saying, firstly, we support our colleagues. Secondly, we think we have a huge amount of faith in vaccines. And third, just to make the point that, you know, we need this research to be happening and we need it to be done by good, competent people, which South Africa has lots of. So when all these vaccines started being rolled out for trial in South Africa, the impression that I got certainly was that because South Africans were participating in these trials, South Africa would be at the front of the queue for vaccines. Why isn't that the case? In most cases, that is the case. When you we trial drugs, those drugs have to be made available in the country that they are trialed in. It's a basic ethical principle of medical research. And the likelihood is that they will be made available here, but we need them urgently we need them yesterday you know and what's happening we're seeing across the world is this this graceful vaccine nationalism where um rich countries are simply buying them their way out of trouble and getting to the front of the queue so you know by getting to the front of the queue it means that they're crowding out huge numbers of people who may need the vaccine more than other um, than their population it's just really unpleasant and unfortunately South African government appears to have been a bit asleep at the wheel and it's difficult to understand what exactly it's proactively doing to get the vaccine into the country. You know, we're going to be sitting under perpetual, this lockdown mentality for the next few years at this rate if we don't get the vaccine. And I think for all of us who are, have been living under this dystopian 2020, the idea of this continuing for the next few years is almost unbearable. How does the rollout of a vaccine normally work? What is the national system for making sure everybody gets a vaccine? 
So, in fact, South Africa has one of the most sophisticated and best vaccine programs on the continent. It really is something to be proud of. And, in fact, something people may not know is that we spend more on vaccines than any other class of drugs, not on antiretrovirals, on chronic medicines, vaccines. And what would normally happen is a vaccine would process, these processes usually take several years. The fastest vaccine ever brought from from sort of the the Petri dish to to actually being handed out to people in the streets was the mumps vaccine, which took four years. But most vaccines take much longer than that. So what would normally happen is it would be trialed, we'd work out whether it was safe or not, and the company then would come up with a submission to the regulator, which is the South African Health Regulator, and put in a dossier saying this is what we think the vaccine does, this is how safe we think it is, these are the side effects and give a proposal around what uh, medicine insert, that little bit of writing that comes in in every single vaccine and in every single tub of tablets that you get. So the regulator would then look at that. That process can take as long as two or three years, although it seems to be getting faster in South Africa. And they would turn around and say, we agree with the drug company, or they'd say, we don't agree with this and this. You need to change the package insert to that. Or they might even turn around and say, we don't believe these results are reflective of what might happen in our community. We want more studies done in South Africa in whatever community you might be looking at. And that's the kind of, it's quite a long-winded process, but it is an important process to protect the integrity of because it, it balances the safety of these new interventions against trying the urgency of actually having access to them. And how do the pharmaceutical companies fit into this? You know, if there are three trials running in South Africa, where is the obligation on their part to facilitate the flow of vaccines to people in South Africa? So they do have an obligation to make those vaccines available to people in South Africa. The problem is that you're dealing with nationalistic governments. So these companies are there, you know, to try and sort this out. They're also there to make a profit. Let's not pretend that it's, you know, it's anything other than that. But I know a lot of people there and they are trying to make a difference and they recognize the kind of hideous pandemic that we're sitting in. There needs to be some forgiveness in the system simply because we've never had anything like this before. You know, we've usually had high drug prices for antiretrovirals in America, but very low prices in, in Africa. And that's worked out pretty well for us, actually. But we've never had a run on a drug or a vaccine like this across the whole globe. You know, we're not competing against the rest of Africa. We're competing against every other person on the planet. So your question about who, are they responsible, I would ethically ask yes. But I would also ask is like, what does South Africa say about giving it to Zimbabwe or to Malawi or to India? The public pronouncements from the three companies, as well as from, there's another eight vaccines in the making at the moment, is that they were very open to making the, the vaccine as available as quickly as possible. The details are a little bit sketchy here and there. And as I said, you know, it doesn't, even if a company does give that commitment, it doesn't stop the American government from simply saying, I'm sorry, we're going to just stop the export of all of those. We're giving it to our local community first. So there's all this complexity at the moment. It's an unprecedented situation that we're dealing with at the moment. I mean, part of me is irritated by the fact that, you know, we, I see that the Aspen factory in Port Elizabeth is being repurposed to start producing vaccines. But we were making wild pronouncements. The South African government was saying, oh, we'll be fine because we can make these vaccines. When South Africa hasn't been producing these vaccines for almost 20 years, we don't produce vaccines. Other people do it for us in other countries. So we were incredibly vulnerable right from the beginning because our manufacturing capabilities haven't been um, just, you know, it's not what's been prioritized. It's been cheaper to actually buy them from other countries. When those other countries suddenly are putting up their hands and saying, us first, 
that's where we run into trouble. So we are in a bit of a quandary at the moment. So just for clarity, we've never produced a vaccine in South Africa. This will be the first No, no, we have, just not in the last 20 years because it's just been cheaper to outsource it to other countries. You've been quoted as saying we're all sitting here terrified not knowing if we get the vaccine. Yeah, I think that's, as I said, government finally got it together on Friday. I made that quote before Friday. And there's this vague, oh, we're all going to be okay, we're working on it thing from the Department of Health, which is fine. Yeah, I think that throughout COVID, my biggest criticism of the South African government has just been this complete lack of putting communication at front and center of its engagement with, with communities and with gov- and with, with the public. You know, it's like we're an afterthought in terms of telling us what's going on. And when things are going wrong, you know, uh, I mean, in terms of corruption around personal protective equipment, when vaccines run up and the Eastern Cape health system completely collapses with just the smallest number of patients entering the system, you know, for them to stand up and say, don't worry, we got this, is not reassuring anymore. So we need a plan. We need to hear about what's happening, who are they talking to, what are the discussions, what are the commitments. Again, so that, you know, we've made incredible strides with antiretroviral therapy, but we have had very limited success with other drugs and vaccines. We pay often far too much money for these, these things. And part of the reason for that is that government does not use the legislative frameworks, the legal frameworks, and the way, and also its ability to buy huge volumes of these drugs to get a better deal. So I don't understand why we're not being told what's going on. And that's why I say we're terrified. Is There is a strong possibility that you know, the government's proudly told us that a couple of percent of the population are going to be vaccinated. You know, to my mind, about 30% of the population is highly vulnerable and needs to be vaccinated pretty damn quickly. Yet we've been told, oh, there's a couple of percent. So who's going to get it? Is it going to be healthcare workers? Is it going to be diabetics? Is it going to be granny and grandpa? What's the plan? You know, and these things, you know, it's not like this vaccine came out, the vaccine researchers were thinking about this last week. We've been thinking about this for, you know, since the virus came on the scene and the vaccine started to become apparent, just thinking who should get first. So government doesn't have much excuse. It should be thinking about these things in real time. It reminds me of the schools closed down over lockdown. It's when the lockdown got lifted and the Department of Education turned around and said, oh, we weren't ready. And I was like, what have you been doing for three months? You know, now suddenly you're engaging with this issue. And it's the same feeling around the lockdown, around the vaccine access. Is a sense of no one does, seems to be thinking about this until it's the last possible moment. And what happened with the Friday press release is it only came after multiple people started putting up their hands and saying, like I did, you know, what on earth is going on? We're getting scared here because it doesn't seem you guys have got this. What do you need to see to reassure you that we will get it? I think just details of who they're talking to, what are the commitments, what are the timelines, what's the thinking around prioritization. There's some hard choices that need to be made here, and I, you know, I think that's there's a lot of forgiveness around getting some of this slightly wrong on part of government. But it, what isn't forgivable is just sitting on your hands and waiting, you know, for, for people to make a fuss. So we just need to see a detailed plan, which manufacturers are being engaged with, what kind of volumes are we talking about, what is the mechanism for vaccinating a huge percentage of the adult population, how do they plan to do this, who are they talking to, which experts are they asking. You, know, you mentioned earlier I was on the Ministerial Advisory Committee, you know, Part of the frustration of us on the Ministerial Advisory Committee was giving advice to, to, to government, and that advice, you know, not taking it is fine, but not explaining why you didn't take it is not fine. And I think that's what we need to see, is to see stuff that we can 
we can critique, we can prod, we can, and we can assist with. Everyone is in the country, I think, is so invested in us sorting this out, in invested in government getting this right. But unless they involve us in the decision making, there's no way we can assist, critique, come up with a better plan, whatever. So it's all about communication and transparency, which I think has been sorely lacking. So the talk now is that South Africa is only really going to get the vaccine by mid-2021. Is that your understanding? The, I think 2021, just getting a handful of vaccines, seems to be pretty optimistic to my hand, mind. This couple of percent I was talking about seems to be what people think is that is going to happen. But again, I don't know who the government's talking to. They claim they're talking to manufacturers, but my spies amongst the manufacturers tell me that they have had no overtures. So it's very hard for me. But again, maybe my, these people inside the organizations have, don't, have, are not in the corridors of power where these discussions are happening. But who are they talking to? You know, and what are the commitments? Just vaguely saying we're talking to manufacturers just doesn't cut it to my mind. There are a lot of myths around vaccines and it's hard to understand sometimes what's true and what isn't true. But there's a lot of talk as well about herd immunity. If we wait this long for the vaccine, won't herd immunity sort everything out for South Africa? It may. It's going to be at the cost of tens of millions of people getting sick, significantly sick, with a disease that we only now are starting to piece together where there are all sorts of evidence of long-term neuropsychiatric, lung pathologies. There are paper every week. I am beaten by multiple publications as to the long-term consequences of COVID. This is not a wussy virus. This thing is serious, and it's particularly serious for old people. It's particularly serious for diabetics and people with um, chronic comorbidities. But it's it's also pretty serious for young people. People keep saying, oh, it's only got 1% mortality. Would you get into a car every morning if it had a 1% mortality? You wouldn't. It's just ridiculous. You know, a 1% mortality is a high mortality. Now, it's probably, for particularly for children and for people in their 20s and 30s, considerably lower than 1%. But it's not nothing. And, you know, it seems like this other extreme are just simply throwing up their hands and saying, oh, yes, we'll just drive that through. To get 70%, no country I'm aware of, there's not even small communities we're aware of that have attained the 70% herd immunity threshold, even in the worst affected parts of the country. So we know we're close to herd immunity, even with natural infection. We also have no idea if that natural inf- infection is enough to drive herd immunity. We also don't know if it's permanent. Lots of viruses come and go, and the herd immunity wanes, and then you have to have another round of infections. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Next, we hear from Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, one of the medical experts behind the Great Barrington Declaration, which is opposed to strict lockdown. Dr. Bhattacharya says that the group is in favor of focused protection. He explains where masks and social distancing fit into the campaign to stop governments from imposing strict lockdown. I would like to see the debate sort of change very fundamentally in uh, South Africa, the United States, and elsewhere. And I think starting to look at the lockdown harms is the, is the key to that. It's not just economics. We shouldn't frame it that way because that's, that's not, it's, 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 uh, it's not that it's misleading. It's that it's, it's, uh, it's complete, it's incomplete. The economics has physical and mental consequences, including massive, you know, deaths. That I think to, to a large extent outstrip the COVID deaths. We have to look for balance in our public health policy because those deaths matter just as much as COVID deaths. 
So you've got a very thick skin. You've had come in for a lot of criticism as well since you've published this great Barrington Declaration. Why have you continued to support this idea? Well, I'm a professor of medicine at Stanford. I've done health policy and infectious disease policy for 20 years. Um, if I don't speak up, who who will? I mean, I, it's my uh, this is the this is my honest view, and my job it involves expressing this honest view regardless of what uh, what pe- what people throw at me. So I, I, I mean, I'm going to continue to say this because I think that the lives of, of you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of, of people around the world are at stake because of this policy. I think the lockdown policy is the single biggest public health mistake I've seen in my uh, my decades of work in this in this field. And I want to I want to correct that. I see there's, there's a whole sort of movement almost criticizing the, the Great Barrington Declaration and sort of poking holes in it and so on and a whole Wikipedia site devoted to this. How do you respond to some of the criticisms? For example, one of the criticisms is that you make no mention of masks. Well, I mean, I think uh, masks can have a, a, an important role in some settings. And, and uh, so, so, for instance, I mentioned already masks in the context of protecting the vulnerable in care homes. Um, and I think uh, if you let the world free, like so you let's say you let people go to go go. Uh, uh, to uh, playgrounds or pl- let people go to school or let, let people open up businesses, people will still social distance and, and wear masks when it's crowded. I'm not against that. I mean, that's just, I think when people feel threatened, they will take steps to try to reduce the, that threat. I mean, I, and I, I'm compa- I mean, I believe that that's, that's not unreasonable. I mean, we don't say anything about masks and, and, uh, and other methods because that's not the key idea. That, that we're not against it. It's that the key idea is not locking down. Let people decide what risk they're willing to take on the basis of good public health information, right? So I think I'll give you an example. If you tell people that we're all at the same risk from COVID death, what ends up happening then is that older people think they're at less risk than they actually are, and they take more risk than they probably should, whereas younger people think that they're higher risk than they are, and they take fewer risks than they, they probably should with respect to COVID, and, and, and ironically, more risk with respect to their normal activities. Um, so that, that is, they cur- curtail the normal activities, which would be good for their physical and mental health. Um, you know, they don't go to the gym or whatever, uh, and, and, and instead stay locked down because of the fear, of the, uh, the excess fear of COVID. Good public health messaging fixes that. Um, you tell people what the risks actually are. You give them good information about what the mitigation strategies do, and people will uh, will adapt to their local situations. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID nineteen podcast. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.